0: Matthew chapter 1, we started our study of this book last week, Matthew introduces us to Jesus with a lot of names, and we discover that he has a lot to say with those names. So we're going to continue to follow Matthew as he helps us get to know Jesus, who he is, what he has done. And what it means for us. And so we're going to finish chapter 1 tonight. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 25. 18 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his (coughs) name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come tonight and consider the story of our Savior's birth, this can be such a familiar passage. Because we hear these words a lot around the month of December, every year. And what I pray tonight is that your Holy Spirit would renew our ears to hear this in a different way. To feel the weight of what we're told about and to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) As a pastor, I'm a walking conversation killer. (laughs) So I meet someone new, and we're having a nice conversation, getting to know one another, and inevitably you come to the question, what do you do? And I tell them, well, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, what was a comfortable conversation becomes a very uncomfortable one. And you'd be surprised how people act when they find out that I'm a pastor. They start getting very agitated and, and, and they will confess things. Like they'll say, oh, okay, that's good. You know, I haven't been to church in a while, but I try to be a really good person. It's, okay, I, I, I wasn't asking you that, but that's okay. Um, and, and so people get very uncomfortable with pastors And this comes from a host of different sources. It's history and culture and experience. But I think it comes also from a spiritual source as well. And I think it comes from a spiritual discomfort. People don't really understand what I do, but they understand that it's connected to God in some way. And that makes them uneasy. Because while many of us believe that God exists, we struggle to know how to exist with Him. How to live with God. And this is an essential problem with being a human being. It is certainly at the core of the biblical message that all that is wrong with the world comes from a fractured relationship between God and us. So that one of the great questions of history, one of the great questions for you this week, is how can I live with God? And Matthew, as he continues to tell us about the origins of Jesus, to tell us about Jesus and His family, he addresses that problem. He addresses that discomfort. Discomfort. The question, how can I live with God? And so I want us to look at this story of Jesus' birth. And we'll see that we can live with God because in Jesus, God is with us. And in Jesus, God is for us. So first of all, God is with us. Matthew, as a storyteller, is an over-explainer. You know the type when they're telling a story and they constantly have to stop and and help you try to understand what's going on in the story. That's what Matthew does throughout this gospel. He steps in as the narrator and says, hey, here's what's going on. And usually it's some sort of connection to the Old Testament. And he does that in our passage in verses 22 and 23. He steps forward as the narrator of the story and he says... What's happening here with Jesus, with Joseph and Mary and the angel and these names, is connected to the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And it is a very, very strange reference for Matthew to make. Because you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, and and what happens is, you have King Ahaz. He's a descendant of David. He's a king over the southern part of Israel. Israel is split at this time. There's been civil war and strife. And so he's king over the southern part. And there are enemies coming against his kingdom. And they are very powerful. They're stronger. They're better than he is. And he's freaking out. All right. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, it's going to be okay. God is going to defeat these enemies. And then he says to Ahaz, now, I want you to ask God for a sign. I want you to ask God to prove that he is going to do what he promised you he would do. And Ahaz says, no thank you, I'm good. And Isaiah says, "Eh, not a good response, uh, but God's going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign will be that a woman will have a son whose name is Emmanuel, and by the time he's old enough to eat solid food, your enemies will be defeated. And because of your doubt and refusal to do what God told you to do, God is going to raise other enemies that will eventually come and defeat you. Now, what does that have to do with what's going on with Matthew, right? That's the the very natural question. What does that have to do with Jesus? I mean, if Matthew had gone to my seminary and had used this in an exegetical paper interpreting the Bible, he would have failed, okay? If he didn't explain more. So why does... Matthew connects Jesus and Joseph and Mary and the angel to what happens in Matthew, or what happens in Isaiah. But we need to understand that Isaiah, when he is talking to Ahaz, he connects to a pattern that runs throughout all the Bible. And it's the pattern of a very bad marriage between God and His people. It's the pattern of divorce and remarriage. It goes back to Genesis. God puts Adam and Eve in a home. And more than anything, the Garden of Eden is a place to be with God. But Adam and Eve reject God, and so he removes them from his home. He kicks them out. He divorces them. But then he comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm I'm going to remove towards humanity through you. And so he takes the family of Abraham and he puts them in a home. He puts them in the promised land and more than anything, it is a place to be with God, to live with him in harmony. But the family of Abraham, just as Adam and Eve, rejected God. God gives them what they want and he kicks them out of the home. He divorces them. Remember from this list of names last week, the deportation to Babylon, the exile That is God divorcing His people. He's saying, you're done. You will not live in my home anymore. I am sending you away. And it is an incredibly horrific tragedy for God's people. And all throughout this pattern in Scripture, when God chooses to move towards His people again, to reconcile with them, He will signal it with a significant event like a baby being born named Emmanuel. So what Isaiah is saying is God is once again moving towards His people that have rejected Him, moving towards reconciliation, and He is signaling that with the birth of this baby named Emmanuel. Now let me stop and address a concern, because when we hear this story in this pattern, It is easy to see God as cruel. Of how could He divorce His people? How could He kick them out of His home? Is He like a capricious father who says, I'm done with you, leave. That's not the image in the Bible. The image is not of a capricious father, but of a betrayed spouse. If there is a woman whose husband continually cheats on her, would we say that she is cruel to say it's time for you to leave? That's not cruel, it's just. Right? And that is the image of this pattern that we see in Scripture. And Isaiah connects to it. And then Matthew connects to it as well. And he says this story of divorce and remarriage is reaching its climax. God is once again, finally and fully, Moving towards His people, towards the world, towards humanity. And He is signaling it with a birth. The birth of Emmanuel. God with us. And we see this not only in these names and the connection to Isaiah, but the way that Matthew tells the story here. Doesn't this story begin with a divorce or the threat of a divorce? Joseph thinks that Mary has rejected him and is, pregnant ac- and is pregnant because of it. And so he, according to the law, just and righteously, puts her away, and also with compassion, is ready to do it, not putting her to enormous shame, which would have brought ruin to her and her family. And understand an engagement in this culture, it's, it's marriage, okay? Much, much stronger than our idea. Of engagement, So for Joseph and Mary to be engaged was for them to be essentially married. It just wasn't completely done yet. <coughs> and so the passage begins with a threat of divorce, but it ends with marriage, right? Why? Because of Emmanuel. Because God comes to Joseph through the angel, this messenger, and says, No, no, Joseph. This isn't what's going on here. It's not what you think. It's not that Mary has rejected you. It is that I am moving towards my people who have rejected me with this baby. So God in Jesus Christ is remarrying His people. He is re-embracing those who have rejected Him. Emmanuel comes to create an environment, to create the conditions where... God can live with us, and we can live with Him. But we struggle to believe that, don't we? I know that we struggle to believe that because uh, part of what I do as a pastor is I sit down with people who are wrestling in their spiritual lives, in their Christian life. And one of the common struggles that I hear is that I don't sense God anymore. I feel like God has abandoned me. I don't sense His presence like I used to when I was early on in my Christian life or when I had those significant experiences in college. I don't sense that God is present. But Emmanuel tells us that that's a mistake. It's not a mistake a misreading of emotions, but it is a misreading of your own perceptions. Uh, It's like Ryan Knighton. Ryan Knighton is an author, and he teaches English in Canada, and he's also blind. And he writes a lot about that experience. And I heard him tell a story recently about traveling for his work and getting to a hotel room and needing to call his wife before he went to bed. And so he begins to feel his way around the room to try and find the phone. And he spent almost an hour going over what he thought was every inch of that room, every table, the bed, even into the bathroom, trying to find a phone so he could call his wife. And he couldn't find one. And so he gave up and thought, let's not be a phone in the room. And he woke up the next morning to the sound of a ringing phone. And was his wife saying, why didn't you call me last night? And what had happened is, as he felt the room, he thought one of the walls went a little bit further that way, and he didn't need to continue feeling it. But actually it turned around and there was an alcove and a table and a phone. And so what he thought wasn't there was not, it was a mistake of perception. He could not perceive the presence Of that phone. And the Christian life is often like that, where we are trying to feel our way through life and we sense that God is not there, that He is absent in the pain that we're facing, in the confusion we're facing, in the day to day of our experience, that God is not there. But Jesus is the ringing phone. He is the ringing phone that says, no, 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 that is a mistake in perception, not in reality. Because of Jesus, we can know that God is here. And the Christian life is a series of peaks and valleys emotionally. It's not a straight line of confidence the whole way. Your confidence is a belief. As a believer, we'll go up and down. But that does not change the truth of Emmanuel. That Jesus came to be God with us. And if we are in Him, then God is here. He is in your life, in your experiences. Now we hear that, and there is a temptation to think of God as kind of a cosmic snuggler, all right? Uh, God wants to be with us. He moves towards us, right? He he wants to be with us. But the Bible says in several places that God is a consuming fire. So even though He moves towards us in Jesus Christ, we still have the problem of the consuming fire, right? Right? We still have the problem of how do we live with a God of holiness and righteousness? Well, we have to understand that in Jesus, God is not only with us, he not only moves towards us, but he is for us. The Holy Spirit is very prominent throughout this passage. Right? The Holy Spirit mentioned several times as Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth. And of course, uh, as we understand in Scripture, the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. This is God's presence with His people. But if you pay attention to what the Holy Spirit, His, His place throughout the biblical story, you'll notice something. You'll notice that the Spirit is very productive. He's always doing things. He's accomplishing things. So that He is not merely God's presence hanging out with people. He is God's presence doing significant things. So for instance, in creation, Genesis tells us that the Spirit hovers over the face of the deep. And what happens as a result of that? Will order and life come into being? And then after that, throughout the Old Testament story, the Spirit comes on significant individuals, usually a soldier or a warrior. People like Joshua. Remember Joshua? Leads God's people in victory over their enemies. And the Spirit comes on these warriors to empower them to defeat the enemies of God and His people. So notice what Matthew is doing. He's saying, Jesus comes from this empowering Spirit. And then what does Matthew show us? Jesus not only has the name Emmanuel, but He has the name Joshua. Jesus is simply the Greek form of the name Joshua. Jesus is a warrior. He is God's presence fighting for His people. Fighting to save His people. He is the active, productive warring spirit of God. He comes from that. And so he comes to fight for us. But fight who? Who's the enemy? Old Testaments, the Canaanites, the Hittites, all those other ites, right? Who's the enemy? What does the angel say? His name will be Jesus. He'll be Joshua. Comes from the empowering spirit of God. And he will save, that's a military word, he will rescue his people. From what enemy? From their sins. And we've already met this enemy. Why does God divorce Adam and Eve? Why does he kick them out of his home? Well, because they reject him and he gives them what they want. Why does he exile the people of Israel? the descendants of Abraham. Because they reject Him and He gives them what they want. And that's sin. Sin is saying, no thank you, I can find what I need elsewhere. It is rejecting God and His desires and the result of sin is God giving us what we want, which is separation from Him and separation from the life that comes from Him, which is death. So Jesus came empowered by the fighting spirit of God to rescue us from that enemy. To rescue us from the cycle of rejection. And we'll see it throughout his life and his teaching. And then we'll see that that fight takes him to the cross. Where Jesus takes on himself the cycle of rejection. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes on the enemy of sin and the effects of the enemy of sin. And he dies and he rises from the dead and he returns to heaven. And then what does he do? He takes the empowering presence of God and he gives it to us. He gives it to the church. He gives it to those who believe and belong to Him. So do you see the relationship between the two names of Jesus? Jesus became Jesus so that He could be Emmanuel. He became the warrior so that He could be the husband. He became God for us so that he could be God with us. Sometimes we have our kids pray at mealtimes or or at bedtime. And my four-year-old Georgia, my four-year-old daughter, has gotten into a habit and I have no idea where she got it from. But she'll begin her prayers like this. She will say, Dear God, Thank you for God. And my initial response is to say, oh, that's cute, but that's not how we do it. That's not how we do prayer, right? But then I read Matthew, tell me about the birth of Jesus. And this passage says to me, no, she has grasped the deep beauty of the Gospel that in Jesus, God has given us Himself So yes, dear God, thank you for God. And that should be our response to this passage. Thank you. Dear God, thank you for God. And this is not a polite, appropriate thank you that your mama taught you, okay? This is an explosive joy that comes from considering that in Jesus Christ, God gave Himself To us. And I want that thank you for us as a community. I want us to be a community of gratitude. And not, again, polite gratitude, but life changing gratitude, the kind of thank you that will change our lives. And I want that for this community, and I want that for your life this week. Not just for your lips, but for your life. To live a life of thank you, God, for God. Because it is very hard to be self centered and deeply grateful at the same time. It is very hard to be greedy and deeply grateful at the same time. It is very hard to be anxious or angry. And deeply grateful at the same time. So this week, will you join Georgia's prayer? Dear God, thank you for God. As a pastor, uh, my goal is not to be a killer of conversations, but a creator of them. And so what this means is that I have to be about Jesus. Jesus. Because he's the one that takes that friction on himself and takes it away. And I hope you'll join me in that. In being about Jesus. So that we can start a transformative conversation in Tallahassee. About God. The one who in Jesus is with us and for us. Let's pray.